Well, that was a pretty interesting weekend to say the least. Um, sort of reminiscent of 2008 and the global financial crisis, as we saw two banks fail, uh, many other regional banks traded very significantly lower, even some of the larger banks traded very significantly lower. We're gonna get into that as part of our regular weekly economic and market commentary. I'm Herb Morgan, Senior Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer. As a reminder, you can follow me intra-week on both Twitter that's at ETF underscore strategist, or on LinkedIn, uh, just Herb Morgan. Uh, this is available both uh, as a subscription-based email where you get the graphs and charts and slides, or you can just listen in on a podcast and any of your various favorite podcast playing formats. The name of the podcast is Slaying Bulls and Bears. We try to make the complex and complicated simple and sensical. Pretty good chance we'll get to do that today as we describe what's happening uh, in the U.S. banking system. As a reminder, though, this presentation is prepared uh, by us for use with both by both investors and financial advisors. However, each are expected to make their own investment decisions. Nothing contained in this presentation should be treated as investment advice. There are no recommendations for the purchase or sale of any securities. All of the information contained in the presentation is for informational purposes, no tax advice. Uh, let's get into it. What in the heck just happened last week? Well, if you've never seen uh, the movie with Jimmy Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, best thing you could do is watch that on Netflix or some other streaming service this week and you'll understand exactly uh, what happened. We had a classic run on a bank. It's very unusual, very rare. Uh, ever since the Federal Reserve came onto the scene in the early 1900s, Federal Reserve's primary role for most of its existence was simply to prevent this from happening. The way they prevent this from happening is they allow the banks to put up their assets as collateral. They get loans against those assets in order to meet the withdrawals that people are requesting. This is because in the United States, we have a fractional reserve banking system. If I go to the bank and deposit a dollar and you go to the bank tomorrow and borrow 70 cents to build a house or to finance your business, and then I go and ask for my dollar back, it's simply not there. It's been made out as a loan. Uh, so FDIC insurance coupled with the Federal Reserve backstop prevents wide scale run, runs on banks primarily in the United States, except when it doesn't. In, the day, in this day and age with uh, social media, very quick information travel and the ability of people to withdraw without having to line up outside, simply go online and send wires, pay bills, send ACHs, et cetera, uh, things can happen very quickly. And that's exactly what happened last week. It was a wonderful life, Jimmy Stewart, all the people getting their money out of Silicon Valley Bank, a top 20 U.S. bank, by the way, and the banker saying, I simply don't have the cash. But what I do have are other assets. I have 30-year U.S. Treasury bonds, 20-year U.S. Treasury bonds. I have mortgage-backed securities. I have loans, loans to businesses. I have loans to people for their homes. I have mortgages. All of these things are illiquid. And all of these things are marked down on my balance sheet in terms of their price because interest rates have gone up. When interest rates go up, 
bond values go down. A six month maturing bond goes down very little, but a 30 year maturing bond goes down a lot. Think about the mortgages on a bank balance sheet that were made four years ago when interest rates were near zero and a borrower borrowed for 30 years at two and a half percent. Well, is that mortgage still worth par? No, of course not. In the open market, it would be worth far less. Banks were forced to mark those down, couple that with at, with uh, withdrawals of people's assets, bank liabilities, and you run into the situation we ran into last week. Quick timeline of events on Silicon Valley Bank. It was a top 20 US based, based commercial bank in excess of $200 billion in total assets. About a little over a year ago, the Fed, Federal Reserve's FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee, began to raise short-term rates to combat inflation and to reverse the excess monetary stimulus it put in the system during the COVID era. And when you raise rates, as we just mentioned, longer dated bonds, longer dated loans, longer dated mortgages have mark-to-market losses. Now, unlike 2008, there's not an issue of credit quality, particularly with mortgages or treasuries. I put a chart in here of the iShares 20 plus US treasury bond ETF. It invests in treasury bonds that have maturity beyond 20 years. Now we know that it's the only thing that is completely and totally guaranteed, the underlying holdings of the CTF that is, US treasuries. Even annuities, which are guaranteed by an insurance company, are really only limited to the extent of the balance sheet and the ability to pay back of that insurance company. But US Treasury is completely guaranteed by the unlimited taxing authority of the United States government. So here, just as an example, I was very picky, but I chose the point where right before the Fed started raising interest rates, I chose a high in the value of that. You can see 150-ish. And then I chose the low where a, this went down 39%. Now, if you bought a 30-year U.S. Treasury at $1,000 and it was trading at $600, did you lose 40% or 39% of your money? Well, not really. If you hold that bond to maturity, you continue to get your interest payments and you get your money back at the end. But this is the reality of the market. If interest rates are higher, that value of that security goes down in the marketplace and that caused mark to market losses. And you could put this, this could be a mortgage. This could be a mortgage backed security. This could be as an ETF I chose, could be a US treasury itself. All of those things went down. The difference between this and 08 though, was in 08 we owned uh, collateralized loan obligations, collateralized bond obligations. We, we own, the banks own different types of equity tranches of these securities. And therefore there was not, there was not uh, a rate risk, there was a credit risk. And there was a likelihood that they were permanently impaired. And that likelihood today is significantly lower. We don't see in the aggregate that bank assets are impaired today. Technically, they are from mark-to-market basis, but in terms of bank uh, balance sheets, the strength, the quality, increased regulation, mortgage quality today is significantly better than it was from the liar loan days. Banks that own treasury securities have a 100% guarantee of the United States government. 
if they own agency, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Federal Home Loan Bank, those carry an implicit guarantee. They're not guaranteed by the U.S. government, but most people think the U.S. government would step up to avoid broader contagion. In 2008, we had derivative mortgage-backed securities and the value of the homes fell well below the value of the mortgages. They were, they were credit impaired. And then add on to that today, we have stronger regulation, higher bank capital. We don't think this is going to go from idiosyncratic to systemic. That of course all depends on consumer behavior. If we all ran out today and tried to pull our money from banks, then it could become systemic. But from a fundamental standpoint, looking at the regulatory backdrop, the asset backdrop of the bank, this is idiosyncratic to Silicon Valley Bank and one or two others. So our investors, many of you called over the weekend and emailed, thank you for that. They wanna know what is your exposure? Well, if you have money in a bank with less than 250,000 for single people, 500,000 for uh, married people, you, if you have more than that, you do have risk. That being said, with Silicon Valley Bank's failure over the weekend, the FDIC and the United States Treasury and the US Federal Reserve all stepped up from a regulatory basis to make sure that liquidity was available to meet bank redemptions by pledging, by pledging their assets, that's the loans, the mortgages, and the treasury bonds uh, at the Federal Reserve. The original purpose of the Federal Reserve was exactly this. No taxpayer funds were used, no fiscal impact. Uh, this is exactly what the Federal Reserve is supposed to do before it got its additional mandates in the 1970s of price stability uh, and full employment. Beyond those amounts of banks, you really should put your money into a custodial brokerage account and purchase U.S. Treasuries. Now, most people think if they put their money in the bank, it sweeps into a money market. Well, years ago, when interest rates were at near zero, the cost of running a market, money market exceeded the interest that could be earned. So the custodians switched to offering a insured sweep account, FDIC insured, essentially a bank account within your brokerage account. Your cash, dividends, interest, cash you put in were swept in. But this too is subject to the FDIC insured limitations. Oftentimes, your custodian purchased additional insurance on your behalf. You might want to check. But easier than all of that is within a brokerage account, you could buy literally almost everything. So in our brokerage accounts, what we manage for our clients, we've either purchased, uh, there's some money in the sweep accounts well below the FDIC limits, or we, in addition to that, we purchased U.S. Treasury bills in your account, or purchased an ETF that invests in U.S. Treasury bills. That, of course, is not guaranteed. It's going to fluctuate, but because the underlying holdings are very short-term in duration, there's very little risk. Our bank exposure in terms of equity ownership of banks is limited to the extent that banks are constituents of indices within the ETFs that we invest in. So we don't expect any significant exposure uh, and direct exposure or idiosyncratic exposure of our clients, but the systemic exposure of broader volatility uh, slowdown in the economy, for sure, this exacerbates the 
likelihood of a recession this year uh, for sure. Okay, let's get back into the normal uh, commentary. It was a very brutal uh, week. You can see, look at small cap stocks down 7.6%. Gains for the year essentially wiped out with the exception of international markets up 6%. You can see just barely above that zero line for the year now on most of the major equity indices. Fixed income uh, caught a bid, the exception of course being high yield because of its tie to equity. It's tied to, uh, you know, it's tied, it's sensitive to the direction of the economy and as high yield spreads widen, that's often an indicator of a, of a pending recession. And I do believe the odds of recession got higher last week uh, because uh, of obviously everything that happened. Economic data last week you know, seemed to not be even relevant given what was happening with a couple of financial institutions, but we'll get into it. Factory orders were expected to go down 1.8. They were down 1.6 in the month of December, backing out the volatile uh, transportation component uh, up 1.2, more than expected. So I would say on margin, positive report. Consumer credit was expected to grow 25 billion. It only grew 15 billion. It's a little bit less than expected. You can see that big growth in consumer credit here for a period of about a year, now back to more normal levels. Uh, trade deficit in uh, January uh, rose a tad, but we're running around 65 to 70 billion a month trade deficit. Remember trade deficits are a subtraction from GDP. Uh, so if the trade deficit narrows, the trend is a little bit of narrowing. You can see that trend on the right here. Uh, that's a positive for GDP. Uh, but the big thing we were looking for last week before we got distracted by bank failures uh, was the labor market. We got ADP, we got Bureau of Labor Statistics, and we got JOLTS, as well as weekly claims for unemployment. JOLTS, or job openings, fell from 11.2 to 10.8. So that's a sign of a cooling labor market. But the ratio of openings to unemployed uh, is still very high at 1.9. There's 1.9 openings for every unemployed person in this country. So we still have a very tight labor market, just not as tight as it was the month before. Initial claims for unemployment, you've heard me say this over and over, below 300 is a healthy market. Below 200 is a very, very tight market. We peaked above 200 last week to 211. I expect that number to start to trend higher now. Um, there, there are a lot of sort of fall on implications of the banking system here. So I think bank credit lending standards are going to tighten aggressively. Uh, banks are going to be carrying voluntarily more cash for redemptions, figuring things out, uh, not making as many loans, et cetera. All of that is disinflationary uh, on the economy. The two big jobs reports, ADP, automatic data processing. They say payrolls that we added 242,000, well above expectations. Um, and then January was originally 106. They revised it up to 119. So strong labor gains, according to ADP. Bureau of Labor Statistics says non-farm payrolls were expected to go 225. They rose 311. 11th straight month that the gain has exceeded the consensus estimate of economists that report into the Bloomberg service. 
This is the longest streak that goes all the way back 25 years. Uh, however, unemployment did peak up from 3.4 to 3.6 because more people entered back into the labor force and declared themselves sort of eligible uh, for playing time or for working time. But I think the most fascinating thing last week was the change in expectations about what the Federal Reserve is going to do with interest rates. Literally a week ago, we had just gotten off raising the expectations for the Fed funds rate, what the peak would be, how long it would stay there, because the economy simply wouldn't break. The fever of inflation wouldn't break. So we kept raising that rate, raising that rate, trying to get it down. And then last week it broke. On March 6th, a week ago today, you can see what the implied Fed funds rate was. You can see it was well above five and a half or 5.4, I think it was about 5.47%. It was supposed to reach that somewhere late summer, early fall, and then begin to come down. As of this morning, that peak Fed funds rate is now just less than 60 days away. away. It is not at 5.5%, but now just a little over 4.7%. And we're actually talking about then cuts as early as June and rates as early as July being lower than they are today. Let's look at this in terms of a spreadsheet. So that graph you just saw uh, for the March 22nd meeting a week ago was expecting one rate hike of 25 basis points and then a 33% chance of another 25. So we had a lot of people thinking we could get a 50 basis point hike on March 22nd. Now, on for today, March 13th, the expectation for March 22nd is, is about a 70% chance of one hike, 25 basis points. So there may be no hike at all and you can see here, we were looking for 50 to 75 above where we are today by May 3rd. You can see what a change. Peak Fed funds rate was expected to be September 20th at five and a half. Now, 75 basis points lower and less than 60 days from now on May 3rd. Now, is this good? Well, it means you don't have to keep discounting the valuation of stocks for higher interest rates. It means that bonds aren't as, won't be as an attractive a substitute for stocks. But it also means it's likely the economy is slowing a little faster, uh, a little harder than we thought even a week ago. That's sort of the, the, the implication of all of, uh, all of this. Okay, economic data this week, Again, not as important really as what's going on with the banking system, but we've got small business optimism. CPI is critical, but I believe this is going to be thought of as stale data. Uh, this is February CPI. Uh, it's going to be thought of as very stale because there is now a pre and post Silicon Valley Bank. Same with PPI on Wednesday. New York State manufacturing retail sales, housing sentiment, Jobless claims, imports, export, housing starts, building permits, Philly Fed, production utilization, and then consumer sentiment. Again, all comes down to banking this week. 
uh, and whether or not things stabilize, which I believe they, of course, will do. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'll be back to you again in one week or sooner if market conditions warrant.